Hi, you're listening to Plug In To Grow, a food and urban agriculture podcast that helps raise awareness about local food and environmental issues in the region of Peel. The Plug In To Grow podcast is hosted by the Young Urban Growers, a group of youth leaders from the region of Peel who are empowering our communities to take action to build sustainable food systems. My name is Rav, and today I am joined with Shui, who is a food mentor with us at Young Urban Growers. And today we are talking about what it means to be a young and new farmer in the time of climate change. So Shri, why was this a topic that you and the Young Urban Growers wanted to explore? As Young Urban Growers, uh, we're all very much interested in, uh, in getting, like, you know, in anything surrounding growth, plant growth and, you know, uh, farming techniques. And so it, it was very exciting when we got an opportunity to actually speak to a young farmer just to, you know, hear what they have to say and, you know, share some of our uh, anxieties uh, with regards to, you know, climate change and do they feel the same way, uh, you know, when they're doing at a professional level as, you know, we, we do. So that's, uh, you know, that's the drive behind this podcast episode. Great. So recently you had a chance to sit down with Paul from Florin Farms to talk about uh, farming and being a youth in the farming community and climate change. And Paul, I have heard his name a lot at Ecosource. He worked on the Iceland Teaching Garden Food Forest Project, which I'm sure you will ask him about. And since then, he has gone on to open his own farm. And I'm really excited to hear more about the Food Forest Project and also what he's up to uh, in his farming career right now. So let's tune in. So hi, Paul. Uh, Welcome to our uh, podcast. Could you please tell us a little bit about you yourself and uh, about Florine Farm that you run for our listeners? For sure. And thanks for having me, Shri, and taking the time to do the podcast. So my name is Paul, and I farm with Alana, who I'm married with, on our farm called Florerin, and we're north of Guelph, about an hour and a half, near a place called Neustadt, Ontario, and it's on Three Fires Confederacy territory. And Alana farms 30-plus medicinal herbs, such as echinacea, chamomile, mountain mint, and many more. And I grow nursery tree stalks, such as nut tree seedlings and medicinal shrubs. And we grow those for people in our community and are able to ship them across the continent because of their light weight to try to supply more products for people to begin healing themselves and to regenerate the soil with the trees and shrubs. Awesome. What sparked your interest in farming or gardening to begin with? Yeah, this is a nice little story, I think. Um, I grew up in Mississauga, which is traditional territory to the New Credit First Nations, and I was not involved in agriculture beyond my mom's garden and my grandma's garden, which were really sweet, but I had no passion for it, necessarily. And coming to Guelph, I was introduced to the organic garden on campus called the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming, only because at the time the organic program was under threat of being cut for funding. And these wonderful women who were students were organizing all these different showcases of why organic agriculture is important. And so I first got introduced to farming by these women 
defending organic agriculture and then going to the farm and getting my hands kind of in the soil and on the plants and learning a lot, especially from someone named Martha Gay Scroggins. And I just want to share that the Guelph Center for Urban Organic Farming is under threat of being cut again. So if people are interested in learning more about that and supporting them, they can look up uh, Friends of the Farm in Guelph. And it's a really neat place to begin learning. Were there any challenges you faced as a, you know, as a beginner or uh, when, you, when you started over and as a new farmer? As a new farmer at the University of Guelph on that campus garden and then moving forward in a couple of years and interning on farms and farming for the past nine years, I would say that beginning was the easiest part. Mm -hmm. I had a bunch of wonderful mentors and a really supportive learning environment. And it was so much positive change with good food and medicine that I was learning all these new skills. So it was very easy to enter, very low skills, easy to pick up and very fascinating. But I would say the challenge that a lot of new and young farmers are facing, including myself, is access to land, um, which for Alana and I looks like being able to purchase or co-purchase for the purpose of stewarding and farming long term because land prices have been driven up because of development and speculation in different areas. So the challenges for us come a bit later in the process of um, having a long term secure place to grow food. Well, now moving to you know a bit, uh, a bit of your work that you collaborated with the EcoSource here. Um, I've been uh, um, I've had a chance to go through uh, your paper about uh, the forest garden systems. Could you please, uh, you know, give us a little, uh, you know, introduction as to what that that means, and you know, can tell us briefly about uh, your work with EcoSource. Yeah, and thanks for reading the paper. That makes me feel really nice. <laughs> um, part of my research was looking at the historical landscape of this land that many of us call Ontario and that many know as Anishinaabe territory. And pre-colonization, so a couple of centuries ago, 85% of the landscape was covered in forest. And so if you could picture walking outside and instead of seeing houses and roads and parking lots and everything else that we see, it's mostly forest and a little bit of wetland. And some of the most diverse forests as well in terms of tree species. And in 2010, so 200 years after contact or so, there was less than 10% forest cover. So it's a huge decrease in the amount of species diversity of plants and the, the ecosystem that existed and that people lived in and managed on varying scales for their food and for their housing and for their medicine. And along with that decrease in forest and the increase of development of housing and practice of cultivation-based agriculture and industrial-scale agriculture came problems with erosion and more pesticide and fertilizer use and species extinction and contributions to climate change. So a bunch of these big global issues. So my research focuses on how we can remember and relearn the ecology in which our place wants to be because there's this succession in the ecology that wants to return to a forest and how 
in remembering and relearning with this ecology? How can we partner and be in better relationship with the indigenous peoples who have been living in this ecology for the longest period of time, like thousands of years compared to settlers, which have just been a couple hundred years. So it was, yeah, specifically on forest garden systems, looking at woody perennials like apple trees and nut trees and berry shrubs and medicinal herbs that come back by themselves. You don't need to replant them every year. And my research got to have a practical side where I got to plant apple trees and 10 different supportive plants underneath them. Some like pea shrubs provided nitrogen for the main crop, which was apples. And there were secondary crops like uh, bee balm and chocolate mint that provide provided different teas that people could harvest and use medicinally. And just as plants, they provided nectar for pollinators and habitat for other insects that help to balance out pests. And so there is a, a little guild or a, a system of plants that support each other and provide benefits to humans and non-human animals. And that is called forest garden systems. And I got to install one of those little projects at Ecosource and give little tours and eat apples off the trees and have a good time. <laughs> Does this uh, forest garden systems are more like, you know, more relevant to fruit orchards or do you think like urban growers who are into vegetables and greens can also benefit from this sort of, uh, you know, uh, intercrop mixed growth? Yeah, I would say urban growers uh, have plenty to to learn from these types of systems, especially because most areas in Mississauga that I'm familiar, familiar with have trees that exist. And so a lot of shade exists and not too many annual plants do that well in shade. There may be some lettuces or kale and some brassicas that appreciate a bit more shade, but for the most part, perennial plants and, and natives that are edible um, can provide many more opportunities for people to play with in the existing shade. And then for people who have access to full sun, there's still plenty of opportunity to plant something like a fruit tree or a nut tree that will provide so much food as well as restoring soil quality and providing oxygen and storing water in, in addition to providing that food. And then underneath those plants, you can still plant more things while saving yourself a patch of sun for the more hot crops like tomatoes or eggplants or bitter melons and things that need a bit more hot sun. Yeah, so there's a lot to be absorbed there. Good, good information. We know that there's a strong connection between food farming and climate change. What food or farming choices do you make in your personal life or at Flora Rain Farm that are contributing to building a sustainable world? Yeah, that's a very important question. And it, it's very interesting to be deeper in farming communities because a lot of the focus that a lot of organizations act on are trying to transition large scale monocrops that rely on cultivation to more diverse plantings and less cultivation and more low tail practices. So ourselves personally, we are influenced by indigenous food systems and permaculture 
and agroecology. And those systems encourage us to look at what the natural successions or flows in the ecology in which we live and what those flows uh, encourage. So for example, again, the landscape that we live in wants to become a forest. So for me, I look at the foods and medicines that can be produced via perennial plants. So I'm growing chestnuts as an example, uh, which are trees that planted out at the same area as corn might be, say acre to acre of chestnuts to corn. And you can produce the same number of carbs of chestnuts as you can carbs of corn. But the cool thing about the chestnuts is that you don't need to replant those every year. and You don't need to till the soil, which results in a lot of carbon being released into the atmosphere and contributing to climate change. Whereas when you have trees that have roots and leaves that shed every single fall, that contributes to soil carbon buildup and sucking that carbon from the atmosphere back into the earth, as well as storing into wood, which can eventually be used in furniture and housing and long-term carbon storage. So that's one example of how we're using trees to help preserve soil carbon and will also provide food for people and trying to offer that as an alternative for farmers who are currently monocropping to transition into and use more woody perennials and use less tilling options. Yeah, it's just uh, switching to more, I guess, more uh, output with less work, which is sounds like a you know awesome solution. Yeah, and very nicely articulated there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, could you please uh, explain us, uh, you know, what permaculture means? Sure. Permaculture is is a fairly young phrase. It's about forty years old, and it's a toolkit that was designed to provide guiding ethics and principles for humans to design the systems in which they live. And you can find it online via YouTube or any search engines. And it was created because the people were seeing that capitalism specifically was resulting in the dehumanization of people and the destruction of the environment upon which we depend on as, as humans. And as an anthropologist, he studied many indigenous communities and trying respectfully, or at least as a community of permaculture now, we're trying to respectively co-design human systems with indigenous communities from all around the world so that we can regenerate and maintain the environment upon which we live. So again, just to summarize, it's a toolkit of principles and ethics that help humans to design their life to meet their needs well, also the needs of the world in which they live. Excellent. Uh, I've learned something new and I'm curious to know more. Just uh, we do hear the term climate change a lot these days and obviously it's, uh, it's everywhere in the media and discussions. As you know, from common knowledge perspective, I understand that the effects are really perceivable in the polar regions and the coastal areas with the, you know, raising water levels, everything. But I'm curious to know if you have observed anything at your farm, any phenomena that is directly attributable to climate change. Yeah, it's an interesting question, especially for me, because I've been on this farm for two years. And similar to many people in my generation, we kind of move around 
renting land for smaller periods of time, mm -hmm. which doesn't allow as much observation or collection of data. But based on the experience of the people who have lived here for 10 and for some people for their whole lives, droughts are, are more common. So th this year, despite having a very wet spring, the, the summer was quite droughty <laughs> uh, and dry. And so people that depend on grass for their, for their animals or depend on, on water for their large-scale crops are having a larger challenge with lack of nutrients due to lack of water. And also on the flip side, in the same year, there was too much water in the spring. So many people that still depend on tractors to get into fields, um, the soil is too wet for them to go in and cultivate and too wet for them to go in and seed. So that provides two issues that are on the very opposite side of the weather coin. You know, too wet one part of the season and too dry. And so those are some examples of people connecting climate chaos and climate change to the impacts on their farm. Yeah, so it's real and it's happening. Definitely worthy of uh, you know, all, the, all those news discussions uh, happening around. Um, interesting and, and I do appreciate your uh, you know kind of the real-time like you know, boots on the ground uh, observations there do you have any advice uh, for uh, youth interested in farming as a career yeah it, it's very very exciting and filled with unlimited learning to go into growing food as a career and it's really nice to be asked this question because when I was younger in high school, just maybe a decade ago, it was never an option. People almost deterred me from going into farming. And many people still struggle with agriculture, especially sustainable or regenerative agriculture because the political and economic system is not set up to support us. But seeing EcoSource and seeing what I'm doing and seeing what my friends who are over for dinner tonight are doing, I'm inspired every single day to continue and to have access to the food and medicine that we grow and to be able to provide that to other people. It's, it's one of the most joyful and beautiful things I do in my life. And I will continue to do it despite not having the, the best income right now, but more resources are coming out to help young people access land and to help young people develop business plans for farming and the amount of equipment that's being developed for small scale human scale uh, farming is is very exciting so there's some tips there lots of podcasts out now definitely join ecosource at, at a garden the organization blows my mind i wish they existed when i was in mississauga and yeah just get as many opportunities to farm on different places as you can because there's so much different kinds of farming out there that's very encouraging thank you for sharing that paul and uh, i do see myself uh, you know sometime in future venturing into you know and you know this sort of uh, like small scale you know one man two man uh, level you know kind of uh, farming you know just as a probably alternative career or uh, you know probably like early retirement career some sort of uh, you know thing like that i'm sure a lot of people are in the same similar mindset and and this sort of discussion and you know information uh, from uh, an experienced farmer like you would oh. uh, go a long way well, thanks. And Sri, we need people like you. We need engineers, we need mathematicians, we need information technologies, we need visual artists. 
uh, anyone that cares to spend part of their time farming and connecting with the, the land and water that way is a huge benefit to this world. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Paul, for your time. I guess uh, I have that's all the questions I had for the evening. Um, anything uh, you'd like to ask us or share? Some of the biggest topics that that I'm focusing on with with the community that I, or, that I organize with is is not only access to land for new and young farmers, but also solidarity with indigenous and new immigrants, indigenous people and new immigrants, because any relationship that we have with the land upon which our livelihood depends, uh, we recognize that there's inequity in terms of the indigenous people and new immigrants to this land. So that's a topic that I feel is super important for as much people to know about and to begin thinking about and coming up with creative solutions as possible. So that's one piece. A big a big item that that myself and and Alana and other people in our community organize around is is the fact that our relationship with the land is one that is steeped in colonialism and that we have so much room to improve with the indigenous people that are still here and that have been here way longer than we have been. And just the acknowledgement that their food systems with these ecologies in which we currently live were effective and they were very complex and intricately known. And for us to move forward with an agriculture that we hope to be regenerative and healing of our communities and the land, it, it only makes sense for us to be in relationship with the original people of this land. And so what that looks like in our communities is our organization, which is the National Farmers Union, sponsoring events where Indigenous elders, such as Glenn Trivet, come in and offer historical teachings of the land and talk about the history of colonization and how that's impacted the people and the land and share just stories of what ceremonies can exist and, and what things can be done as we move forward in relationship. And that allows us as settlers to support Glen Trivet as well as uh, Native Friendship Centers like Mawikwadong to have money to do the work that they prioritize, which a lot of that is healing and mentorship work with Indigenous communities. And so even if we're farming and that's our main livelihood and our focus, we want to relate to Indigenous communities in a way that they're comfortable with and support them in what they're prioritizing. What a great conversation, Sri. So is there something new you learned or something that you're going to take away from this conversation? Absolutely. The whole interview was so informational for me personally. I learned about permaculture. But uh, yes, in, in this, uh, you know, as Paul shared so much about, uh, you know, what's happening, uh, you know, out there uh, with respect to observations about climate change from the farm directly, and uh, also, you know, uh, some of the concerns that, you know, young farmers might be facing and are, are facing or might be facing in the near future about like the land accessibility, uh, et cetera. So, yeah, 
Yeah, something that really stuck out to me in your conversation with Paul uh, was the piece where when he was speaking about how a lot of young people, especially in urban centers, they don't really know that agriculture and farming specifically is a career path for them. Um, and I, just like Paul, I grew up in Mississauga and never once was some, did anyone say to me that I could farm or be a worker in the agriculture field. And it wasn't until I also went to the University of Guelph and it wasn't until I got there that this whole agriculture world was opened up to me. And that's something that I really try with the volunteers and uh, youth that come to the Iceland Teaching Garden. I really try to help them see that farming is a very legitimate career that youth can look into, even if you live in an urban setting. Indeed. Thanks so much, Sri and Paul, for sharing this conversation with us. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you want to learn more about Florinan Farm, you can find them at www.florinanfarm.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Urban Growers Firm Ecosource, an environmental education nonprofit based in Mississauga, Ontario. The Plug and Grow podcast is generously supported by the Ontario Trillium Foundation and Talus Friendly Futures Foundation. Visit ecosource.ca to learn more and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ecosource Green. Now let's go plant some seeds in our community.